Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Kara Arendelle, a senior reporter at K-12 Dive, joins us to discuss two decades of private school choice in D.C. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber reports on a new study investigating the success of science of reading interventions in California. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. Hey, Mike, all we have to do is implement the things, you know, that work in theory, right? <laughs> what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Kara Arendelle. Kara is a senior reporter at K-12 Dive. Kara, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and also joining us, as always, DC's David Griffith. Thank you, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I say DC because we're going to talk about DC today. That is because Kara has written a great uh, series on the 20th anniversary of the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Kara. Well, uh, you know, this is making me feel old. I was there at the creation of this program 20 years ago, played a tiny, tiny role. I was in a few meetings. This was a program eventually that was overseen by the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Innovation and Improvement. And it is now 20 years in. You wrote a great series for K-12 Dive about the importance and impact of this program, as well as some of its successes and failures. So let's just get into this. What did you learn doing this story? First of all, just about you know, where this school choice program fits in terms of the history of school choice or in terms of its uh, influence or impact on other initiatives around the country, as, of course, many, many states in recent years have been embracing private school choice. Yeah, great question. Um, The origin for this story really came from watching the growth nationally of private school choice programs, especially in the last few years. Um, We wanted to take a closer look at one private school voucher program that sort of had longevity. longevity. And we wanted to look at the benefits, the flaws, um, how participants were doing, as well as how the program impacted other school Uh, programs locally. I live in D.C., so I've watched the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program and its relationship within the school um, community in the whole district. Yeah, and so because this is such a unique program, given that it is uh, funded by the U.S. Congress, but locally administered, it's had longevity, 20 years, and there is already an abundance of school choice options, public, private, here in D.C. And um, I felt like this this program sort of flew under the radar. So we want to do a case study on on this. Yeah. And remind us, Kara, this is relatively small, right, compared to D.C.'s huge charter school sector. The charter schools serve about half the kids. Uh, so what is that now? Probably something like 40,000 maybe? Exactly. Yeah. How many kids are, are in the an Opportunity Scholarship Program? 1,700 this year. So that compares to about 50,000 students who are in the DCPS, School System District of Columbia Public Schools, and then another 46,000 who attend public charter schools in the district. So, and some people look at this and you you interviewed some of them and look at this program 20 years old as kind of old fashioned, 
right? That the school choice movement has moved past this model. This is the just a traditional voucher, right? That the the money basically goes to the parents and then they sign a voucher that so the money can follow their child to a private school of their choice. Uh, what makes this different than what we're seeing in more places today? Right. In fact, one source I interviewed for this story, uh, somebody who's pro the the private school uh, voucher option said this was a policy dinosaur at this point because we are seeing in other states education savings um, accounts, tax scholarships. Those give a little bit more flexibility flexibility than your traditional uh, private school voucher program. And in DC, particularly, there's a there are um, some a lot of guardrails around who can participate. It's income based, and if there's only um, so many private schools that participate, and for participating families, they have to reapply every year. Not reapply to the private school they're attending, reapply to the program for the tuition assistance. Yeah, make sure that they're not earning now too much money to qualify. Yes. And it's interesting, You say, as you say, not all schools participate. Uh, it was certainly most of the time it's been the case that many of the most elite schools, I think, did not participate. Um, is that that's still true today, would you say? You know, I the the uh, participating schools are publicly available um, through the organization that administers the um, the program. Um, it's you know subjective on how you measure elite schools or competitive schools, but I see a variety in that list. All right. Well, so let's talk about this. So, you know, the big question, has it worked? Uh, you know, some of the bigger programs around the country in more recent years haven't shown particularly promising results, at least on test scores. Think about Ohio and Indiana, Louisiana. Uh, what about in D.C.? Yeah, great question. And as I say in the story, it depends on which metric you're looking at. This program, as I said, is one of the most researched ones. One, because it's been around for so long, but because of its congressional authorization, it was required to have uh, federally mandated evaluations. So there is the gold standard of evaluations where there's control group, right? And that they've had several reports over the years. Um, some reports talking about um, how academic performance of participating students um, were, was not as high as a control group. They measured for uh, chronic absenteeism. They also measured for parent satisf satisfaction and student satisfaction. So all of these different metrics show different things. I wrote about that in the story, but what was important to me was also to interview current school administrators whose schools are participating and also current families and students. I wanted to hear those voices. Everyone told me that this is about parent empowerment, um, about the students. So I wanted to hear those voices. And, and look, evaluating this program is challenging. This was the one piece that I was involved with was the evaluation. And, you know, here you have a pretty small program in, in the large scheme of things, but also, you know, a D.C. public school system that was getting dramatically better at this time. Right. A charter school uh, sector that is arguably one of the highest performing in the country. A lot of the kids that were in the control group that didn't win a scholarship. Well, guess what? They 
decided their parents decided to send them to a charter school. So, you know, is that the right comparison? It's, I mean, it, it, from a research perspective, that is the right comparison, but trying to draw conclusions can be challenging. You know, David, this might still be one of the few areas where you and I, I think, disagree in that I support these kinds of voucher programs, especially so that poor kids can go to Catholic schools uh, and other religious schools if that's what their families want. You know, I think you're more comfortable I, with the public charter school model. And anything on your mind for Kara as you think about this and as a DC resident? Well, I guess I'll just say uh, there are, there are trade-offs, right? And so I support accountability in voucher programs. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean that the program has to, has to close down if it doesn't achieve exactly at the same level as whatever the competition is. But I think there's, you know, there's an acceptable and an unacceptable level of performance, right? And I don't think DC's you know, I, despite the fact that the, the research is sort of mixed, I don't think that the performance of the DC program is is unacceptable, right? Um, whereas with some of the places that you've talked about, right, Louisiana, I mean, there was just just completely unacceptable level, you know, outcomes for students um, in some of these programs, in my personal opinion. I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole, but I, yeah, that's, that's sort of my gut reaction, right? It's, you know, there's a zone of reasonableness when it comes to these things. And, um, you know, the evaluations... They prove why we need evaluations, right? We're, we're, I, we sort of suspect that outcomes are not great for some of these newer private school choice programs, but by design, we can't actually see the outcomes. And so it's hard to make the case. And, and Kara, t- t- remind us, you know, are there some schools that have been kicked out of this program over the years, you know, either because of bad test scores or maybe just because... Okay, you know, I don't know uh, the accounting stuff. You can't tell if they're what they're doing with the money. I mean, is there some form of public oversight to make sure? Because you can imagine that you know, there's probably some, many good schools, but there could be some fly by night. You know, you always worry that some new quote school pops up that's just a chance to try to get the money. Uh, what is that all about? That's a good question. Um, again, there's 20 years of research, data, uh, congressional testimony. Um, so really, I um, was looking at what is going on right now and what the the organization that authorizes um, these this program said that they monitor the schools with site visits every year. There are policies that the schools have to follow. And it is an option for private schools to participate. And even if they participate, they might not necessarily be enrolling students that year. And again, such a difference than some of the newer programs in education savings account, say, where money's going to homeschool family or, you know, an after school program. and, And certainly there's not the possibility of that kind of oversight. So I know as a reporter, you can't really answer this question, but I am curious if you think that this program is going to be around for another 20 years. You know, I mean, some people would say, well, this is surprising that, you know, D.C. is obviously an overwhelmingly uh, liberal Democratic city. Uh, you know, liberal Democrats don't usually love private school choice programs, public money to go into religious schools. Uh, somehow it has survived all these years. Is it going to continue to survive, do you think? That's a great question. And um, who knows? It's up for you know reauthorization. It's sort of caught in that federal government um, budget limbo right now. And what else is unique about this program specifically is that uh, while there the money is split three ways. Uh, so there's 17 and a half million dollars going 
to the private school voucher program, the same going to the public school, the traditional public school program, and then the same going to charter school programs. That's sort of why local leaders, uh, politicians have not wanted to disrupt that too much because this program is funneling um, money into the public school system. But I, I think the real takeaway for me from this article is that as school choice options expand, even nationally, you know, all of these options are going to have to look at the need to be more efficient and smart with how they do their business. We don't really typically think of K-12 as a business, uh, K-12 schools as business, but Maybe they're going to need to get, um, you know, more efficient or smarter in recruiting and retaining students, that competition for enrollment and um, what unique programs they offer, curriculum opportunities, and even how they attract and retain uh, high quality staff. Okay, well, we are going to need to leave it there. Kara Arendelle, senior reporter at K-12 Dive, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Okay. Uh, Taylor Swift, time person of the year. What what you thinking? Well, how could she not be? I mean, what did she, uh, a one billion, over a billion dollars she generated in her latest concert, I think. So I'm like, well, she's helping out the economy. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's right. Look, I I, I basically buy the argument that this t- Taylor Swift is somebody we that can bring us all together at a time when <laughs> yes we desperately need that, right, David? Quite abundant evidence to the contrary, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Although I gotta say uh, again, I think maybe we've talked about this already. Not good for the Kansas City Chiefs. It seems like I don't know. They uh, just not playing like they usually do. Uh, they used to say the same thing about Tony Romo. Remember when Jessica Simpson would come to his games? Oh, I don't remember that. Interesting. What an interesting parallel. Showing my age. But anyway, I, I don't know if I put a lot of stock into that. But anyhow. Okay. Well, what you got on the research front? Well, just something a little different than that. Uh, new study out from Tom D. and Sarah Novikoff looks into the achievement effects of a early literacy program in California. Um, This one kind of made some news recently. Uh, Just for context, in 2020, the state of California settled a case that alleged the state was violating the right to an education by sending kids to schools that didn't teach them how to read. Uh, Before it went to court, the state agreed to settle $50 million in support of an early literacy support block grant. This was a targeted initiative to improve reading in the lowest performing 75 elementary schools in the state. Uh, Nearly all 75 of those eligible identified schools agreed to initially participate, but they ultimately end up with 66 intent to treat schools of which only two didn't actually participate. So even though it's called an intent to treat, most of them were treated. Uh, ended up being three-year budgets that averaged roughly 642000 per school, which equated to an average one-year cost of roughly 1100 per pupil. Uh, analysts utilized a synthetic difference in differences design. 
Um, that's in part because they had a parallel trends problem when they used the normal uh, difference in difference design, meaning that the treatment schools were already trending downward relative to the comparison schools. Those comparison schools are matched and include school and year fixed effects. So they have to do some unit and time weighting. Oh man, it's it gets a little in the weeds, but they do a weighting procedure that ends up placing more emphasis on pre-treatment periods that are similar to the post-treatment periods. So that again, they can address this parallel trends uh, violation. Then they do a boatload of ro robustness checks to make sure that their procedure is kosher and it checks all the boxes. And let's just say it did. Uh, the program design, just a little bit about that. Again, this is targeted to, you know, no more than 75 schools. They have external support from a competitively selected county office. So they put on an RFP for, you know, who can provide the best PD and lots of it uh, to these schools. And there was a, a winner. Um, and then they had spending flexibility within specified guidelines. So they had some, auto some autonomy over how they spent these dollars, um, but, you know, not not a free for all. Uh, they were also told they could, couldn't supplant. These had to be supplemental dollars. And then they had oversight in terms of submitting a quarterly report on how they were meeting their goals. So those are just some big parameters in terms of the program design. The results, grant eligibility had positive and statistically significant effects on grade three ELA test scores. Specifically, it increased ELA test scores by 0.14 standard deviations among the more than 7,000 third graders served by the treatment schools over the first two years of the grant. Uh, similarly, it increased the share of students performing at level two or higher by 20%, which was a six percentage point gain relative to the pre-treatment baseline of 30%. And then it led to smaller gains also in grade three math achievement, 0.11 standard deviations, which is again, smaller, but you know some evidence of spillover effects into math. It had no effects among grade five students um, outside the program's focus. And again, mostly the focus was on those uh, third graders. Uh, and then lastly, they have only two years of data. So I feel like that's important to point out it corresponds to the first two years of the grant, which was spring 2022 and spring 2023. So there's this question of whether we're going to see fade out. But, you know, given that this was in the context of, you know, COVID recovery, some folks are, you know, kind of optimistic. And they also say they do some like cost analyses and, and basically say that compared to other interventions at the same grade levels, like class size reduction, uh, the per pupil cost here was a lot less. That's what I've got. Well, and, and, and Amber, you mentioned pandemic recovery, but of course, science of reading as well, yes, right? Yes. I mean, I think that Tom D and his author make a make a big deal of the fact that we have all this evidence on how to teach kids how to read, but less evidence on you know actual programs that go in at some scale and try to implement the science of reading, right? That's a, a, a big difference. And so here's one uh, that shows some promising results, which is great. Uh, you know, and it makes me wonder with the, you know, with the third grade test scores are even all that compelling. I mean, I know there's the fade out issue uh, that they'll maybe get to with more years of data, but I almost wonder if it's too late, right? I mean, a lot of the science reading stuff is K, one, two. I assume they're just using the state test, but I wonder if you were able to use uh, some other assessments in those grades if you 
see even bigger impacts that then would probably some of those would fade over time. Those do seem like pretty big impacts, though. I mean, I, on a cost benefit basis, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I was struggling to translate it from standard deviations into actual um, dog years, but I think that's a lot, right, for how much they spend on the program. Yeah, very, very cost effective. No, look, this is this is encouraging. I'd also say, you know, it's, it's another study out of California where these interventions in chronically low performing schools seem to show an impact. You know, if you go back to the SIG days, the school improvement grants days, you know, nationally, that money seemed to not do much good, at least, you know, if you look broad brush. But in California, uh, there were some studies, maybe I think maybe Tom D was involved in some of them uh, showing that, you know, in part because they spent a lot of money. They they really tried to focus the money on a relatively small number of schools and it was intense and they provide a lot of help that they got a positive impact. So, you know, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, th- this is another in a line of California efforts to intervene in chronically low performing schools and, and to do it well, to get results. Way to go, California. I think you're, t- and is this the I3 innovation grant you're talking about? No, no. I mean, just back when and under the school improvement grant program. Oh, the SIP grant. Okay. I, I feel like I remember another study by um, Catherine. Um, gosh, who's our EAPS? Trump. Uh, yeah, that did an I three innovation grant. I thought they, and well, that was in California too. I thought that had a, some positive impacts, but I, I could be misremembering. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, look, we we need it. I mean, it's it's similar to you know Edie Hirsch arguing all these years that content knowledge matters a whole lot. Uh, and and there's a very strong, you know, if you if you ask, look at the psychology, you know, psychology, and you look at the all kinds of great evidence. But then the question is, okay, well, if you actually provided a program where kids learn more content, would they improve reading comprehension? Again, two different questions. And so here we go. Yeah, do science of reading. Do it with a lot of support. Spend the money. Get good results. Uh, I mean, this should bode well for other places that are doing something similar. Hey, Mike, all we have to do is implement the things, you know, that work in theory, right? <laughs> but that's the point. That's the point is that here's an example where they were able to do so at you know reasonable scale. I'm agreeing with you. And, and then look, I hope we can dig into this, Amber, and say, okay, what were the specifics in California that they got right that say Ohio, as it is starting to implement science of reading and put some real money behind it? needs to pay attention to. And, and it may be that, again, the concentration. I mean, I bet a bunch of other states are spreading the money out yeah. maybe too wide. That may be something, you know, it, and it's hard. It's hard not to do that. But to say, we really got to focus the money if you want to get this kind of on impact. The, on the lowest of the low. Yeah. 75 schools and they had their own sort of, you know, PD office, you know, serving them. So yeah, that seemed to matter. All right. Well, good stuff. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.